So back in January, we hosted here at the church the Oxford Police Department uh, to help us with a security seminar to prepare for uh, something that's tragically all too common in our days, and that is an active shooter situation. We're actually working to prepare a security team that'll help us with security when we move into the new building. But frankly, you know, the seminar was, it was both jarring and terrifying, uh, but probably appropriate when you realize what's at stake in those kinds of events. Uh, we were glad to have Officer uh, uh, Alan Ivey, whose presentation marked me something that I thought was fascinating about how people typically react in these types of horrific situations. Apparently, the research has shown that there are discernible phases which victims go through when they sort of find themselves in these nightmares. And phase one is what he called denial. That is, he goes on to explain that there is this habit of the human mind which desperately wants to sort of keep my present understanding of what the world is like, despite any evidence to the contrary. You're in a public place and you hear the pop, pop, pop of gunfire. Hardly ever do you think that must be gunfire. What you think is, is why is somebody putting off firecrackers indoors? And it goes to, in other words, the way things are supposed to be as we see it is remarkably persistent in the human mind, even to the point of twisting obvious notes to the contrary, he said. And of course, his point was to say the only way that you can work your way through that, this denial is by proper training and knowing exactly what plan you have for when you find yourself in those circumstances, because whatever you do, don't try to trust your adrenaline-soaked brain in those moments, right? For instance, imagine for a moment that you know someone who is paranoid. What you find is, as someone who's paranoid, they have this sense, just like Paul understands that we have, of sort of taking the world in, don't they? They organize the world under a set of assumptions, and then they begin to act in a certain way that's in accordance with that. So a paranoid person sees the world around him, they organize it, and they come up with this idea, they're out to get me. And so they begin to behave in that such a way that's in keeping with that way of seeing the world. Well, when Paul gets to the end of this long run-on sentence between verses 3 and 14, he finally turns to the Christian big picture. In other words, he's saying, what is life all about? How does God want us, his people, to take in the world around us, to organize it? And then what does life look like in accordance with that design? In many ways, Ephesians really is nothing more than God's cosmic and ultimate frame of reference by which he wants us to see the world. This is one of Paul's favorite congregations that he's writing to. And he simply wants them to look at the world uh, in a way that God wants them to look at the world. Or we might say, forgetting their bearings. That's what we mean by that. So in this introduction to this letter, we find that there's, there is a God who has a goal. He has a plan for his people. And so the definition of Christian living is to learn to see the world through these eyes and not through my eyes to boot off of his frame of reference instead of my own. And in doing that, we need to look at three keys to help us in our passage. The first one is the big picture. The second is the cosmic picture. And then thirdly and finally, the small picture. And there's key words to deal with each one of them. Let's take the first one. The big picture, first of all. The key word here is the word mystery. Sinclair Ferguson was asked one time, uh, what exactly is the book of Ephesians all about? And he said, well, it's a mystery. 
And it didn't mean that it was unknown. He means what Paul means in verse 9. Take a look at it. He says, making known to us the mystery of his will. You can get a lot of repetition in the first few chapters of Ephesians about that word mystery. And what he means by it is that God has been bestowing all these blessings of adoption and redemption and election on a people. Why? Because he has a plan. It's the best way to translate that word there, will. It's the Greek word boulon, which can be translated plan in other places in the Bible. But what's interesting is, is this plan was not always apparent, not for a long time. As Paul says, it was a mystery or a secret, you'll have some of your translations say. But now that Jesus is here, all the cloak and dagger is gone. It's been revealed. We now know what God has been up to all along. Now, before we get to what that is, I'm curious to wonder what, how you would answer that question. If someone asked you, like, what is God up to? What is the Bible even about, most generally speaking? Well, you ready for this? Here it is. It is that in Christ, God is going to reunite things that have been split apart. He is going to heal the disharmony of things and unite all of us to the praise of his glory. That's it. You just got it. Went right past you, didn't it? There's a reunification project that's going on. God is going to reunite these things. Now look, focus for a moment on verse 10, because it's important in how I just translated the word unite. That word there is the Greek word anakephale. Kephale, in other places in the, in the New Testament, means the word head. That's why it's oftentimes used for unity, because your body meets its unity in your head. Cut off your head, your body begins to disintegrate, Right? But it's the prefix in front of it that makes John Stott think that it's interesting. Because when you add ana in front of kephale, you find that actually it means to reunite all things. In other words, it's not just that there's unity that's coming. It's a reunification that will happen in Christ. So Paul is saying the world needs to be reunited. Why does he say that? Because he's a good Jewish person who understands that in the story of the Bible, the universe was originally united. In other words, no matter where you went in the Garden of Eden in creation, you found that all things, all the components of life, work together to enhance one another rather than to destroy each other. We call that a system. I heard one preacher develop this illustration. I think it's fascinating. A system is just something in which the component parts enhance the whole thing rather than destroy it. Let me give you a couple examples. I remember being a small child when my father handed me an old watch of his. that he that was just, It was not working anymore. He didn't want it. He thought it was ugly. He was like, here, son, just smash it. And I was like, now that's an invitation. So we go out to the garage, we grab a hammer, and pow, just smash that thing into a thousand little pieces. And I still remember the wonderment of the little tiny, I mean, seemingly microscopic little pieces of this watch, all of it perfectly in place to make it enhance the system. The watch is a system, but if you remove even the slightest little gear out of kilter with the rest, it messes the whole thing up. You could even say that your body is a system. You have lungs, right, that work to enhance the rest of the system. But if you go on a spaceship to, to Mars, let's say, and you step out of the spaceship without a breathing apparatus, what? Your lungs will experience alienation. (laughs) You die. You begin to break down. Why? Because your lungs were not built for that system. You die because your body is out of alignment 
with the conditions that make life possible. You see? For that matter, your whole body is a system. And it breaks down, does it not? I am breaking down. So back to our passage. When Paul says that God's plan was to reunite all things under one head in Christ, he means that the world existed and was originally created to live under that one head, being Christ. That means that every single aspect of your life, whether it's your time or your friendships or your job, your business partners, your nation, those all are systems that are built to work only if Christ is the ultimate component, bringing all of it together. So God is the one who set up all the systems, political, social, economic, relational, biological, all of them were his design. And in that original design, there was no death. There was no fear. There was no poverty. There was no war. There was no division. There was no racism. There was no hatred. Why? Because all of those things represent alienation of the system. But they all function the way in which they were supposed to under the lordship of Christ. That's how it was originally created. But of course, as you know, the Bible takes a dark turn. (laughs) In other words, prior to Genesis 3, we saw this fundamental integration of things, which is a great word, by the way, integration. comes to the word integer, which my math teaching wife tells me is a whole number. So it means to be integrated. You're whole in that sense. All these things possessed wholeness when they were under Christ. But in the fall, you start to see disintegration. In other words, when Adam and Eve sin, they pull themselves out of alignment, not just with God's program to bless the creation, but afterwards, in some degree, with every other system. And you know what happens? Things start to die. Things start to decay. All around human beings, they begin to experience decay. And so the God of the universe looks down on his creatures, created to glorify him and to display his perfections, And he determines that he's going to set the world to rights. This, Paul says, is what is going on in the Bible. God's plan for a worldwide global healing. In Revelation 22, we find out that in the celestial city, there's a river that runs through the center of the city. On the edge of which is the tree of life. And the passage says there, John says, and the leaves of which are for the healing of the nations. That's where it's all headed. And what Paul says is, the folks in the Old Testament prophets, they didn't get it. It was a mystery to them. It was hidden to them, at least in terms of its fullness. They're writing about things that they didn't have the big picture of. But now, now in the fullness of time, God has come and shown us what he's ultimately up to in Christ to heal the world of every inch of alienation. All right, now look. That was a fire hydrant of theology that just came out right there. All right, now bear with me, because I'm telling you, if you'll let this kind of sink in, it'll really be transformational for you. And the reason it is is because you have to admit that in American Christianity, one of our distinctives is to be very individualistic when we think about faith. Do we not? How do I get saved? How do I get peace? Where do I go when I die? In other words, my my whole relationship to the faith is so that I can get my little neuroses healed. And of course, the irony is that's actually a fairly decent way, according to the gospel, of getting your little neuroses healed. But Paul is saying that you'll actually never experience that healing until you turn away from your own private kingdom 
And you get lost in this grand and glorious movement of healing that he is building. It's all about your perception of the normal or the way things are supposed to work, right? Before we move on to the next point, pause for just a second to ask this question. What, what is the age at which you arrive? When you first start to ask yourself the question, what, what am I doing all this for? Like, why am I pushing the way that I am? Why am I working so long? Why am, I, why am I getting up so early? Why am I working out so hard? Why am I constantly fighting with my family? What is all this for? Because the Apostle Paul says that however you ask that question, if you don't finally end with your purpose being the reunification of all things under the Lordship of Christ, then you are at odds with God's purposes in the world. This is his secret plan for the universe. And now that Jesus has come, the secret's out. No longer a mystery. It's been revealed. It's been unfolded. That is the big picture of the book of Ephesians. Brings me to the second point. Because there's also a cosmic picture that's being pictured here. And the key word here is dominion. We saw the word mystery in the first point. This one is the word dominion. Look at verse 10. It says something kind of so important about this reunification project. Because there it says that this project is actually going to bring the unification of heaven and earth. Look at verse 10. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This morning in Sunday school, we were asking the question about what images come to your mind when you hear the word heaven? Like what? Clouds, harps, wings maybe, I don't know. Uh, My deceased loved ones. I think for most of us, the extent of our knowledge of heaven is that place I go to when I die. And that's about it. Of course, the Bible actually gives so much more information about what heaven is. And stated very simply, there's two realms in the Bible's way of looking at the world. There's the earth, the place where we inhabit. And then there is heaven, which is God's space for him and the heavenly beings. Of course, we know that since God lives in that space, that heaven is a place of beauty and of goodness. Our space, on the other hand, is infected, is it not? With sin, with rebellion, with ugliness, but which is the fundamental reason why these two spaces are separate in the first place. Heaven and earth are, beside, are, are separate from each other because of mankind's rebellion into sin. Heaven and earth are separated. And so throughout the Bible, you get these indications, however, that God is trying to make little spaces of heaven on earth, where they'll actually intersect. You first get this when you get into the Old Testament sacrifices, especially in the book of Leviticus, where God says, I want you to carve out little spaces of cleanness where you and I can actually have a relationship and you can come in to my presence. And when those things happen, it is heaven on earth in his definition. Later on, we find that God sort of centers all this activity and the meaning of it on a little worship center. Uh, The first one's portable. It looks like a big tent called a tabernacle. But eventually, over time, will become this grand and beautiful temple. But for every Jewish person, that place was the spot where heaven and earth intersected. That's how we get into God's presence. So you can imagine how weird it was when a prophet out of Nazareth came up and started saying things like this. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days. I mean, it was as if Jesus was coming along to say that he was the new temple, the nearest sort of place where heaven and earth would intersect. 
So now do you see what Paul is talking about? When he says to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth, he's saying that Jesus is the place where this reunification effort will take place. It's all in him. There is a cosmic dimension to God's universe because everything visible and invisible will eventually come together again. Look down to verse 19. His great might or his power that he worked in Christ when he raised him up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. His dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Hear Paul saying? Paul is convinced that Jesus Christ, by virtue of his death and resurrection, is Lord today (laughs) over every area of life. Every single inch of cosmic space, whether it is in obedience to him or whether it is in outright defiance of him, is under his authority. You've heard me say before, nobody, people talk about, well, you know, then I came a time in my life when, when I made Jesus the Lord of my life. Nobody makes Jesus Lord of anything. He is the Lord, whether you acknowledge it or not. But look now at verse 22, it gets better. <laughs> and he put all things under his feet, that's the dominion he's talking about, and gave him as head over all things. That's the dominion. He's Lord over every area of life. Who did he give it to? To the church. And then he follows that with something that will blow your mind in just a second. But let's take the first mind-blowing thing. All of this authority and dominion that Jesus was given was given to the church. His exercise of lordship is for you if you find yourself as a believer today. We have a word for this that theologians will use. They'll call it God's common grace. And what common grace refers to is this this fact that Christ's lordship has spread goodness and wisdom and insight and truth throughout the cosmos. And he's done so not, not necessarily with any regard to the spiritual condition of the people to whom he's given it. Anything that is laudable and praiseworthy, it comes from God. And anywhere where life is not as bad as it can possibly be, that's because Jesus is reigning over that, restraining it at that moment. But think about this. God said there just would not be enough beauty and goodness and insight in the world if I only gave it to Christians. And once Christians kind of get this sight, things really start changing the way you do with the world. It's one of the great joys of the Christian life to go and see great art, great music, great literature, great food, and acknowledge and see and discover God's fingerprint on every bit of it. Suddenly this little black and white world becomes color, and you realize there's something beautiful out there, and it's all a blessing because it's for you. Christians get kind of excited about this, and well, they should. But then there's something else that honestly, if I had not read it, I'm not sure I would believe it. Look at verse 23. This church, he says, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now look, whose fullness is whose has been a bit debated in terms of the grammar of this passage. And I'm going to go ahead and admit to you that there are three or four different interpretations of how that lays out. I have settled on the opinion of the venerable old John Calvin, who says this. He says, here's what that verse means. It means that in some way, the church is the fullness of God. 
You just missed that because your, your mouths didn't drop open. Listen, listen to this. He says, by this word fullness, Paul means that our Lord Jesus Christ and even God, his father, ready for this, account themselves imperfect unless we are joined to him. As if a father should say, my house seems empty when I don't see my children in it. Man, I get that. Or a husband say, I'm only half a man when my wife is not with me. After the same manner, God says that he does not consider himself full and perfect except by gathering us to himself and making us all one with himself. Did you hear that? Calvin is saying that God willingly limits his own experience of fullness until he completes his work in you. That's the nature of this guy's love. Look, don't get too bent out of shape. Of course, there's nothing lacking in God. That's not what he means. But let me ask you the question. How transformational would it be for your life if you believed, if you thought, and I mean really thought, that the God of the universe cared for you so much that he determined he would not experience unmixed joy until he had you holy and happy and with him? What if he was that committed to you? Would that change anything? Because that's the cosmic picture that Paul is painting for us in these verses. And it brings me to the last point, and that is the small picture. The small picture has to do with us, and my key word I'm choosing here is the word enlightenment. Enlightenment is what he's talking about. Because the question is, well, how do I fit into that plan? Well, Paul says in verse 10, he's talking about something that's packed. He he said that God wants to give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Did you catch that? Paul's first prayer is that you would have knowledge of God. Every experienced Christian stands in front of every event in his life and says the ultimate reason why this is happening is for me to know God better. That's the ultimate reason. I don't know how. I may not see it. I may apprehend it imperfectly, but that's the reason. Jesus says this in John 17, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that have sent me. I've made known to them your name and will continue to make it known. What's he saying? The knowledge of God. That's our role in all this, that we might know him. Jesus is saying what makes me the Messiah is the fact that my knowledge of God all described as that. Next, the first thing he wants us to have knowledge. The next thing he prays is astounding, especially if you've never heard it, because he says he wants us also to know riches. Look at verse 18. That you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Read this very carefully. These are not our riches. These are his riches. God is talking about His riches, which is a really funny question. What would the God of the universe have that would make him feel rich? What do you buy Jeff Bezos for his birthday? How do you find the richest man in the world? Something that, that, what would ever make that person feel wealthy? You ready for this? The saints. You, if you're in Christ this morning. That's the kind of affection that he has. There really is only one movie that I can be guaranteed to dissolve into tears over. And I've mentioned it before, and I'll keep mentioning it until you get it. I'm just kidding. Um, and it's uh, Steven Spielberg's hook. Just go ahead and warn you. If you're there with me, it's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy me. Because the whole story is about a dad who's forgotten who he is. He's forgotten that he's Peter Pan. 
And so he's whisked off into Neverland while his son is taken captive by the evil Captain Hook. And he searches and he slogs through and he digs through and finally discovers his happy thought. And he flies over to go rescue his son who is there even dressed in the garb of evil itself. And he looks up and he's like, son, I forgot about it. And he's sort of beaten off pirates as he does. And he said, you know, the truth matter is, I couldn't remember what my happy thought is. And then I remember what it was. And he flies up and he gets up in his face and he says, it was you. And all of a sudden, the boy takes off the hat. He begins to unclothe. He begins to take off the old man and becomes what he was intended to be, a new man in Christ. And why do I dissolve at that moment? Because I think that everyone was born to have someone look at them and say, you're my happy thought. You, are, you make life better because you're here. Because in the suspicion that we're not, And that's why Paul turns lastly. He not only prays for knowledge and for the riches, but he also prays for power. You've got it translated in your ESV there as might. He goes, you know what kind of power I want for you? It's the kind of power that raised Jesus from the dead. And you think to yourself, that's kind of weird. If I was going to say power, I'd say, he's going to bring you the, the power of a hurricane or the power of a tornado. What else would you choose? But here's the deal. He chooses the power that raised Jesus from the dead because that is the greatest threat to the execution of God's plan, and that is death. It is all around us. Death is decay. Death is the alienation. Death is the world falling to pieces. Death is is in my soul, in my heart. It's in my neighborhood. Death is in my family when alienation creeps in. Death is in Jonestown, Mississippi, when economic forces begin to crumble around and perpetuate a cycle of human suffering. It's decay. It's everywhere. But Paul says, that's the power I want you to get, because the power that I want you to get is a way of reversing what death has done. So the death no longer has the final say. That's our thing as Christians. Death no longer has the final say. Reminded me, of course, of that great line that that, that Aslan speaks to the children after he's raised again from the dead. And he's talking about the evil witch. And he says, you know, the witch was unaware of the deep magic. The deep magic. And had the witch known the deep magic, she would have, no- she would have known that when a willing victim who committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack. You ready for this? And death itself would work backwards. That's what he says. That's your commission. (laughs) Look, we started this whole sermon by asking this question about how our minds have this persistence to hold on to the way things ought to be. So here's my question for you this morning. So with whatever way you picture how the world ought to be, does your present way of seeing the world come anywhere close to this? Does it come anywhere close to the grandeur and to the love and to the affection and, and, and the adventurousness and the mission that God puts his people on. Because if it doesn't, it is available to you this morning by faith. And what would happen if we were a church that had that kind of view of the world? Hmm. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that it will only happen if you make us that kind of people. That if you enrich us, Father, with this knowledge. Father, we barely even scrape the paint off the depth of this passage. And yet we're already drowning in something that would be too wonderful would we ever know it. To be able to know you, to be granted the power that you have. Father, be able to see that your affection for us, that we are your riches. 
that you have, you have vowed not to experience unmixed joy until you have us with yourself. Father, it's almost too much to imagine. So we pray this morning that we would lift our voices to express a little bit about what's in our hearts so that we might walk out of here transformed and changed. Would you do that? Or we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.